0: so we make sure we have room for everybody. We say that for the recording, and then we edit it out. It's, it's sound like there's a lot going on right now. Yeah, the flu is picking people off, so I'm glad you're here. Congratulations, you, you made it. That's fantastic. Um, we're in 2 Timothy tonight, and I'm really stoked about this study, so let's pray, and we'll dive right into the text. Lord, we come to you now. We're thankful for this time. I'm thankful for the opportunity to study your word in the middle of the week, to kind of stop down to maybe regain some perspective. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for how, how your word just delivers over and over again. Um, even as we're here as a smaller group tonight, I really pray for fruitful discussion, um, for encouragement. I pray that you would give us insight and discernment that we would otherwise never find on our own. Uh, we love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, on these Wednesday night studies, we're on our home stretch. We've been teaching through the Bible for Ooh, a decade or so, and, uh, and as we've come to these, these pastoral epistles and letters to the churches, um, we are doing one book per week. And so tonight we're in 2 Timothy. We've been using, um, if y'all are interested, I just want to remind y'all, a lot of these studies come out of Mark Dever's book. Um, he's got a new te- an Old Testament book and a New Testament book. The Old Testament is a survey called Promises Made, and the New Testament is a survey called Promises Kept, and it's by Mark Dever. So if you all ever want to dig in or kind of wonder where a lot of our source comes from, it's that. He's really brilliant, and uh, I really enjoy his studies, and this is kind of a, uh, a, a version of that as we're going, you know, so quickly, a book a week. So we started this semester in Galatians. So can anyone tell me what the main point of Galatians was in one word? We've been trying to get these one word things so we can remember. So an overview to remind us of if we need something, we remember where to go. So main point of Galatians was what? Faith and Ephesians, grace, Philippians, humility, uh, Colossians, new life, 1 Thessalonians, the second coming. It's hard to remember because it's weird to everybody. Uh, the second Thessalonians? Hope is right. unity's wrong. It wasn't unity, okay? If you're going to say it emphatically out loud. No, I'm just kidding. First uh, Timothy, last week, what was that? Oh, that was the most recent one. The freshest, First Timothy. Maybe y'all were all sick last week and all those people who were here, they're not back. Well, last week we had a study on First Timothy and the focus was leadership, and then Second Timothy this week is on success. So Paul's letters to Timothy, the large uh, motivation behind them is to explain and encourage him in the gospel uh, picture of what uh, leadership and success should look like in light of Christ. So our tonight, our topic tonight is success. Before diving into the text. Um, what is our culture's current definition of success? What are some things that would be indicators of our culture's current definition of success? Money. Stuff. Stuff. I, what? Title. title. Yep. Leisure time. Leisure time. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? That's a bit a bit. That burns a little bit? Yeah. Something you used to get? Yeah. What else? What are some other indicators of our culture's definition of success? Legacy mm-hmm. Yeah. Legacy. Legacy sort of accolades people's recognition of how awesome you are as a individual, awesome person. What else? Fame? Higher education, man's acceptance. So as we consider these thoughts of success, it's not hard to see how our culture currently defines success. And if we're not careful, the reason we have to continue to go back to the gospel and back to the gospel and back to the gospel is that if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves um, drawing the lines of success the same way the culture does rather than allowing our success to be defined biblically. And so Second Timothy helps us to define it biblically. So um, he opens with an intro and he says this, imagine for a moment, I want you to remember any, any good Bible study starts with observation, and part of observation is importing your senses. What does this look like? What does this sound like? What does this smell like? So import your senses into this, this imaginatory, imaginatory, that's not even a word, this imaginatory scenario. Imagine for a moment an old man who is alone. Imagine an old man who is alone he's failing in health, he is isolated from, from, from family and friends, he's so poor he can't even afford a winter coat, he changed careers midlife, but there is no pension plan or medical benefits with his, with, uh, his own startup organization. Not only that, his new enterprise that he made, moved into midlife is uh, faltering. And one more thing, this guy's incarcerated He's under capital charges, and if this guy's found guilty, he could lose his life, and it looks like he's going to be found guilty. So put yourself in that guy's place and ask, is this the picture of success? Unmarried, no kids, no pension, no retirement, in prison, being tried for a capital offense, and you're probably probably going to die because of it. This is the detailed description of Paul while he's writing this letter to Timothy, so that helps us to understand. You know, anytime we study Scripture, we always ask, "What does it say?" Before we ask, "What does it say to us?" And so this is going to help us to understand what it says because if we see Paul in this desperate situation and he's writing to Timothy about success, um, we don't need to have a skewed scenario like, "Well, Paul is finally big in ministry; he's got you know some six-figure setup." Uh, people are making statues for him because he's so great in ministry. And, you you know, there's Jesus and then there's Paul. He's just that awesome. That is a sign of success. It's nothing like that. He is in prison and things are not going well for him from a worldly perspective. But he gives some great perspective to Timothy as he writes this letter in that state. The three main points that form our outline tonight are this. Paul is urging Timothy to keep the message, to count the cost, and to continue to the end. So the three main points we're going to be looking at tonight is to keep the message, to count the cost, and to continue to the end. So look at 1, 7 through 4. 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 4, it says this. 7 through 14. Sorry, 7 through 4 doesn't make any sense. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words. Think about saying, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. According to this reading, what is the source of the message that he's supposed to have? What's the source of the message? Where'd it come from? From Paul. Who got it from who? From God. So y'all could have totally given the Sunday school answer there. It would have been fine. God, yes, that's correct. This, the message of the gospel clearly comes from God. It wasn't a trick question. Y'all think I'm like trying to trip you up. It was totally not. Um, it was given by God. It was revealed by God. And it was brought by God. And so as we're considering the fidelity of the message and how this, this urging of Timothy to be genuinely successful, he has to really guard this message. One is considering where the message came from. And it came from God. And what's the content of the message? It says it in 110. Great summary. The content of the message is what? The appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 110 is a great summary of this message because it's a great summary of the gospel, which is the message. And what we have to see is that in our circumstance and in the circumstance there, it's not just moralism. It's not that he was a great guy who did something. It's that through his death he brought life, and he brought um, uh, immortality to light through the gospel. So, throughout the message, throughout this letter, we see some real specifics given that might seem obvious, but at the time they weren't obvious because there were false teachers in the church that were speaking against um, the message of Christ and trying to tor- turn it into a more of just a moralistic message, like. Jesus was a good guy, you do these things, and the way you do them is largely going to be through the law. That's kind of what the setting was. So look at one thirteen and 14. I just read this, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Dever has a note here that the message entrusted to us is unique, and if we alter it, we lose it. The message entrusted to us, the message entrusted to Paul, the message that was entrusted to Timothy, is unique, and it's unique in that if we alter it at all, we actually lose the message. So the guarding of the gospel has to do with the guarding of its integrity, because there's such a problem with false teachers in the church. Dever has an example of a mail carrier. And he was like, "The mail carrier actually gives us a great example of what we are entrusted to do with the gospel. And just imagine if, like, you went outside and your mail carrier sitting there with your mail, kind of just sorting through it, opening it up, maybe making some notes, folding it back up, putting it in the envelope, and then putting this over here, and you go out there you're like, hey, uh, mail carrier, what the heck's up with all your federal offenses here? Why are you messing with my mail? And if he looked at you and he's like, well, I didn't like the way this first one was written, so I changed it a little bit and I put it back in the envelope so I could deliver the message to you. And I don't think that you can handle those messages, so I'm going to bring them back later. And um, some of these messages, I just didn't like them. I just didn't like them at all. And so we're going to do away with that part. Like That's not the job of the mail carrier. The job of the mail carrier is to deliver the message, to deliver whatever has been entrusted to his care. And it actually gives us just a real simple picture of what, what we do. We've been entrusted with a message. Paul was entrusted with a message. Timothy was entrusted with a message. You don't alter it you don't make changes, you don't hide parts of it, you don't skip over hard parts, you just deliver it. And so that is the urging, that is the model of success throughout this this entire uh, letter. There's two particular aspects of the gospel message that we see special care given to and that we have to guard today because they're so often challenged and changed. When I first read through this part of his notes, I was kind of like, man, I don't I don't know, I think we gotta dig a little bit to get there. So we're gonna we might have to dig a little bit to, to really understand this. But the first thing that is mentioned in light of this message, in light of this letter, is um, we have to carefully guard how we present human need. Why do y'all think that we have to carefully guard how we present human need? It's gonna take a little digging, a little thinking. You may not have an immediate answer. Why do we have to guard how we present human need? Because I didn't, I wasn't with it when I first read it. That, that's actually encouraging. When we present human need, what is the difference between the greatest needs that the gospel expresses of humanity and the greatest needs that the culture expresses of humanity? We have to be careful about how we present human need. So what do you think they presented as human need in a setting where the false teachers are there? What do you think maybe the false teachers presented as the main need that you guys have that I'm going to address as your teacher in front of you? Yeah, how to earn your righteousness, how to earn your salvation. So mainly it's a moralistic issue. What are some other things? Like, okay, now let's go to our culture. If you're not operating inside the church from a gospel perspective, what do you think the greatest needs, if you just went out to, you know, secular, pagan, whoever, and said, hey, what's, what are the greatest needs in life? What do you think they would say today? Be happy. Be happy. Thank you. Prosperous. Prosperous. Know who you are. Know who you are don't let anybody tell you different. What else? Yeah? Creature comforts? Yeah? I think affirmation's a big one. I mean, we have entire segments of our society that are completely given to just affirm me and we're cool. Say anything that's not affirming, I'm out. And no, you're out. Tolerance, yeah, we we put a high priority on tolerance in our society, to such a degree that we will not tolerate your intolerance. What else? So, how does that differ from the Christian message? What is the Christian message? Why must we guard how we present human need from a um, from a perspective of people who have been entrusted with a message? What does that message say is the greatest need? You need Jesus. Why? You can't save yourself. yourself. So it seems real simple. And as we're sitting here talking about it, it's like, "Uh, yeah, it's pretty obvious. But the problem is, age after age after age, this gets steered away from. And the church becomes involved in things that aren't the main things. They turn all these peripheral things into the main things when the main thing is people need the gospel because we have this sin issue that separates us from God. That is the human problem, that is the world outside of Christ. But when we start focusing in on, well, I think people just need more affirmation, or maybe people just need more encouragement, or maybe people just need their physical needs met. I mean, there's entire ministries built around meeting physical needs. Meeting physical needs and affirming and encouraging people is not bad. In fact, if you're a Christian, you better be doing that. But as you do that, you will only do it faithfully. And as much as you clearly comprehend and communicate that the main need of humans is forgiveness for their sins. Sin is the problem you cannot solve on your own. And so if you're going to help people, you're helping them only as a stepping stone to get to an, of a greater point. If you're encouraging someone, you're encouraging them towards a point of faith and trust in Christ because sin is the greatest problem. And every time that the message is changed, it moves away from that central point that this is this is the human need and this is the human problem. So then we got to guard, so we guard how we present human need, but then we, we also have to guard how we present God's provision for our need. So, what are some ways that these false teachers might have said provision comes about, even through God? Well, God gave us the law, so get circumcised and make a, make a showing in the flesh of your own righteousness, and then you can be a Christian. I mean, one of the biggest problems during this time was them saying, In order to become a Christian, you need to become a Jew first, which was incredibly confusing to all the Gentiles, right? Because the Gentiles are going, wait, what? I can't be a Jew? Is being a Christian about being a Jew? And a lot of the false teachers are like, yes, absolutely. It's about first being a Jew. And so their presentation was the law. So today, what might we present as God's provision for our need? If If we don't rightly define the need, what might we present as God's provision for the need? Dig deep. If we're guarding how we present God's provision for our need, if we don't see the need properly, what are some provisions we might think God is providing that are completely off base? money? Let me ask it this way. Let's say you go into a church in a worship setting and a uh, guy's preaching. If he doesn't mention Jesus the whole time, what are some other things he might mention? Success. Love. Love, love. All we need is love. Peace. Grace. What else? Healing, Healing. yeah. Prosperity. prosperity. There's it. We have to guard this because those are the kind of things that creep in and choke out the message. There's entire churches that can gather and never talk about Jesus. It's 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 physical needs. It's emotional needs are our biggest problem, and it's met either through moralistic provision or through Affirmation—that's that's a—that's that's in large part the gospel that our culture believes, and it's not much different than the false gospel that was being taught by the teachers during this time. So we have to guard that because it's—we can become if we lose sight of the fact that sin is our biggest problem. Me, Ben, Brad, anyone else who preaches and teaches will start teaching things that cater to whatever we think the biggest problem is, and we have to be careful with it because usually it's good things. I'm personally burdened that we need to be more evangelistic. And you know the best way that I can foster evangelism in this church is to preach the gospel. Not just start talking about evangelism and giving examples of evangelism and and styles of evangelism and preach through books on evangelism. The best way to encourage people in the area of evangelism is to preach the gospel. The best way to encourage people in the area of parenting is to preach the gospel gospel. The best way to encourage people in the area of marriage and hardship and strife and pain and confusion and loss and death and sickness and suffering, whatever you might say is the biggest problem, is the gospel. That is why Paul is so emphatic about guard what has been entrusted to you, because there will be people who come in with all kinds of agendas, and the deal is they're not all bad things. They're not coming in with the agenda to worship Satan. They're coming in with the agenda to usually help people in practical ways but you have to stick to the gospel. The, the, the long arm of evangelism is a healthy church. Is something you said here. A healthy church is built on the gospel. That means we don't skip the hard parts, and we don't just pick and choose. We preach word for word. We go through books, and we preach the gospel. So Christ entrusted Paul with a message. Paul entrusted Timothy, and Timothy was to entrust it to the flock who would entrust it to others. The gospel never terminates on us. If you ever fall into believing the lie that the gospel terminates on you and it's just about you and God, you do not understand the gospel. Even today, I was meeting with someone who said he was talking to his uh, coworker, and the coworker simply said, me and God are good, you have your way, I have mine. When I'm in my truck, I'm with God, it's all good, and God's with me, and I don't need the church, and I don't need other people. That's a sign of a person who the gospel is terminated on them, and that means they don't understand the gospel. The gospel never terminates on us. It's incredible what happens when the gospel is moving forward properly. The forward movement of truth is intensely relational. It has come up again and again in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and all these letters. The forward movement of the truth is intensely relational. And at any given time, there are four generations being affected if the gospel is being handled rightly to those who it's been entrusted to. If we are doing what Paul tells Timothy to do, and we are... Taking seriously having been entrusted with this gospel, and we're guarding that deposit, that means you are always taking what has been entrusted to you and entrusting it to others who will entrust it to others. That's what's going on here. It never terminates on us. If the gospel terminates on us, we don't understand it. Christianity always entails vocalizing the gospel message to others. You never come across it and you want to be alone it always entails vocalizing it to others. The very nature of this gospel requires that it is to be verbally spread. There was a quote, I can't remember who it was. I want to say it might have been Spurgeon, but it was, um, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that? Is that Spurgeon? Okay. And so when necessary, use words. He was making a point that the gospel should have feet and hands and arms love people, encourage people. So he's saying, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. People have taken that quote and twisted it to mean you don't actually have to share the gospel with anybody. You just got to be nice. You just got to you know, help them out and be an encourager and give them something if they're in need, and that's it. Well, that's not, that's not at all gospel truth. You have to speak the gospel. That means you have to guard that deposit, and part of the guarding it is knowing it so that you can verbalize it to those who you have opportunity to speak it to. The very nature of the gospel requires that it's spread verbally. The only way that Timothy and others can do this in the face of opposition is found in 1, 7 through 8. I already read it, but it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's only by the power of God that you can guard what's been entrusted to you, and share it properly with others, especially, especially in the face of opposition. One of the things we learned in Romans 1 was that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And sometimes those of us who struggle with fear or doubt or anxiety, we, we lose sight of the fact that the gospel itself is the power. And what happens is we will try to share it in a way where we think that our sharing of the gospel is the power. Or how influential or winsome or... Um, how I connect to people is where the power is, but the power is in the message itself. So if you know that message, God will allow any person who knows it to speak it clearly to anyone who needs to hear it. But only by his power can that happen. So we keep the message. And then the second part is we count the cost. In chapters two and three, Paul warns Timothy about the difficulties ahead. And, And rather than minimizing the difficulties ahead, he says, count the cost. It's kind of what we did in our member meeting on Sunday night as a church. We said, we're moving into a season where we're trying to lean forward and engage those in our community who do not have a church home. And rather than saying, hey, it's not going to be that hard. It's all good. Y'all don't, y'all don't wig out. It's not going to be that hard. Rather, the appropriate biblical response is count the cost. We need to consider what the sacrifice is going to be for us to be obedient to the gospel. Look at 2 1. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There it is again, that four-generation movement of the gospel. I entrusted it to you. You entrust it to faithful men who will entrust it to others. That is not just when we preach the gospel. That is every gospel ministry that exists, whether it's women's ministry, children's ministry, worship ministry, um, youth ministry, adult whatever it might be, life groups, you are taking what has been entrusted to you, and your gospel goal, in order to be successful, you're taking what's been entrusted to you. Generation one entrusts it to Timothy, who entrusts it to faithful men who will entrust it to others. The goal of every, every ministry, every gospel ministry, is that it doesn't terminate on you. It's not all on you. You are trying to take what you have and entrust it to others who will do what you're doing because it's what was done with you. It never terminates on us. Every ministry, If we hope to grow and lean forward and engage people, that's how it's going to happen. That's how success is defined. Take what was entrusted to you and trust it to faithful people who will entrust it to others. God's plan has always been to grow his church through generations. The movement of his kingdom has always been through generations. And often that happens in the household. Because you can take what, you know, the opening of this is, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy Paul loves Timothy. He's like a father to him. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and I'm sure dwells in you. You see this generational, doesn't terminate on anyone movement of the gospel. So go back to 2, 3. He says, so share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I love the way he closes. He uses three illustrations that we're going to come back to. But then he says, think over what I say, because that's what we have to do. There's never a time where someone can preach a message or teach a lesson in this church, and that's all you need to do with it. Like, There's never a time where me or anyone else can say, that we were so thorough, you don't even need to go think about it. You are, you're good because I nailed it. Every time you hear truth, I want to actually put it over the door. I had a mural that I wanted to do and then the guy who was going to paint it wasn't ever able to do it. I want to go right there and I want it to be something along the lines of think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. You don't gain all of the understanding you need sitting and listening right here. Much of the understanding you need comes directly from God and it happens when you think over what you've heard. Think over when someone shares with you what's been entrusted to them. Goes on to say, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation That is, in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Consider the significance of this charge given to Timothy. If properly obeyed, multiple generations are affected. And the four movement is still so intensely relational. So what are the three images used to illustrate faithful movement? Three images we just shared in those, or covered in those verses. Soldier, athlete, farmer. Okay? So Paul, in prison, has got plenty of time. He is in no rush to write this letter. He's writing what he needs to write. And he wants Timothy to consider a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. What do we learn from each of those? What do we learn from a good soldier first? Just some conversation. What do we learn from a good soldier? Don't get bogged down and what does it say there? Civilian pursuits, civilian affairs. What in the world does that mean? Secular stuff? Okay. Things outside of his control. Yeah? Things outside of his mission. Yeah. Yeah, who's given the mission? Who's given the directive? Who's given the orders? God. God. And so he's saying, you've got to think as a soldier. Some people get so wrapped up in civilian pursuits that they feel like that's their main ministry. It's all the junk that's going on that they don't need to get wrapped up in. What would be an example today? It's, it's kind of hard for us to, to know exactly the cultural dynamics. We know some of it. But what would be an example today of getting entangled in civilian pursuits? The election. election. Yeah. If you spent more time the last eight years hating a president than you did loving Jesus, you may have gotten entangled in civilian pursuits. If you spent more time talking to other people about the state of the government and what you agree with or disagree with than you did talking about the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins, and you, your message was one of uh, politics rather than one of salvation, you have gotten entangled in civilian pursuits. That's one of the easiest ones to get entangled with, especially in a divided country like ours. People should be looking at the church and saying, huh, they love each other. They're taking care of each other. If Jews and Gentiles could dwell at the same table, so can Republicans and Democrats. Isn't that crazy? I said it out loud. It's awkward now. So what so the good soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. What's another example of a civilian pursuit? Circumstances? Hardships? Oh, yeah, there we go. Parenting styles. The gospel of parenting styles. You should spank him. you shouldn't spank them. You should put them down. out, you shouldn't put them down. out. And that can become like the, the main thing. We can get entangled in that. I think a civilian pursuit isn't necessarily a bad thing, it's just not what the soldier's supposed to be doing. Imagine if you're a soldier in another country that's not your home. You're not going to get caught up in like a, a backroom card game or something that's going on. By the civilians. I have no idea why that's the first thing that came to my mind. That's a little bit weird. I probably should dive into that and figure out what sin I'm dealing with there. I don't think I have a gambling addiction. I can quit anytime. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, it's just things that civilians are, are pursuing. The, the main thing in life is not God. And for those who are soldiers, the main thing is whatever God is saying should be the main thing. What about an athlete? Follow the rules. Perseverance. Perseverance. Training. training. Endurance. Endurance. Discipline. Focus on Focusing on the goal. I was training for a half marathon. That's right. I ran a half marathon. Don't marvel too much. And uh, as I was training, it was my first three-mile run where I was like, actually trying to go three miles without stopping. So um, it was early on in the process. I, couple extra pounds I was carrying around. It wasn't all that easy. And, uh, and I remember I was like, okay, I mapped out my course. If I go here, it's a mile and a half. And that's good because then I can't quit because I, if I go all the way out a mile and a half, then to get back, I have to have done three and I just can't stop running. So that's what I'm going to do. And so, man, I'm like, I, I get pumped up. I got my music. I got my gear. And I'm like, I took one of those goo packs, but you're not supposed to take those for like short runs. Those are like for long runs. But I was like, I don't care. I'm ready. So I'm like, let's do this. And I just take off. And I hit that one and a half mile mark, and I turn around, and I realize how far back it is to my house, and my legs, and my lungs. Everything was like, you're an idiot. And in that moment, I kind of realized, if I'm wanting to go the distance here, I probably need to slow down. If I'm wanting to to, to go three miles, I can't do it at this pace. I have to be more disciplined than that. And so something we learned from the athlete is the discipline of pacing yourself and actually training properly to do what you need to do. You can't just dive in. What some of the best advice I got early on in ministry is, hey, Scott, don't work your way to the top and then find out you have nothing to say when you get there. It's like, awesome. I'm not even totally sure what you're talking about, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that at all. So what about the farmer? patience. What else? Tending. Tending. Faith. Yep. One man plants, one man waters, only God gives the growth. So you got to be completely disciplined in what you're supposed to be doing, yet completely faithful that God will do that which you could never do on your own, even if you were completely disciplined in what you were doing. So we learn a lot from the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. So this call to Timothy is to remain... I love the way that Dever stated this. He said, the call to Timothy is to remain faithful despite the suffering that faithfulness brings. I want you to hear that again. Remain faithful despite the suffering that faithfulness brings. Faithfulness will bring suffering in what ways? What are some ways that faithfulness might bring suffering? Having to not be tolerant, which doesn't mean you have to be rude. just want to make sure we're clear on that. Not that Aaron was insinuating that. Angry, so Aaron, so angry. Say that again. Yep. Yep. What else? Being faithful can make you tired. Being faithful can make you not just... Affirm everything. Say that again? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah, choosing between different things. And maybe you choose something that someone else doesn't like. And they reject you. Or they, you know, run your name through the mud or whatever. Faithfulness will bring suffering. So... This message from Paul to Timothy is remain faithful despite the suffering that faithfulness brings. Dever has this uh, illustration that I really like. I, I know I say, I mean, I love the way that Dever teaches. I, it's, I sound like I'm a, like a pitch man for him. But as I go through this, this example, he said, often in life we can hold the gospel with one hand and our comfort with the other. And I love that illustration because that is largely the way it is for us and the place that we live and the time that we live. I mean, we can hold the gospel in one hand, and we can still hold comfort in the other. I'm guessing everyone here is eaten today. You know, I'm guessing everyone here drove in something here, which means you're among the most wealthy people to ever live on planet Earth. We, we have the situation where we can hold the gospel in one hand, comfort in the other. We walk around carrying both, say that we value the gospel more than comfort. And no one can question us, right? Because the circumstances allow it. I have gospel, I have comfort, but I have, guys, <laughs> this is just comfort. And I value the gospel far more than I value comfort. And unless the circumstances change, no one knows any different, and you don't really have to prove anything. The problem comes when the circumstances change. And what he, the, his statement that he makes is he says, suppose then that your circumstances change. The circumstances permit you to carry both, but if those circumstances change and you're hit with a difficult trial, the opposition becomes so strong that it takes both hands to hold on to one of the two things. So sometimes the opposition in the trial of your faithfulness is so strong that it's going to take both hands to hold on to one of these things. So you're going to to take both hands to hold on to truth, gospel, faith, or are you going to use both hands to hold on to comfort? So the opposition becomes so strong it takes both hands to hold on to one, so you have a choice. Is it gospel or comfort? If soldiers, athletes, and farmers endure for prizes less glorious and less lasting, Can we not endure opposition for the sake of bringing the good news of Christ's reconciling work to the world? I love that picture because any time you are in a place of opposition where you are facing a trial or a hard circumstance, you can say, "Okay, gospel and comfort." I got to hold on to one of them with both hands. I can't. It's kind of like Romans one. You can't. You got to let go of the truth to hold on to the lie, or you got to let go of the lie to hold on to the truth. And so it takes both hands in this faithful movement. Look at 2.14. It says this. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. He straight up called out two people by name. Did y'all see that? He did it. They are upsetting the faith of some, and that bothers him because we should be guarding the deposit entrusted to us. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. There's an encouragement here. It goes on to say, so flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, If you're wondering, am I quarrelsome? Just ask, am I kind? Because the opposite of quarrelsomeness is kindness. Do not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Quite the exhausting encouragement there for Timothy to do things the right way. And one of the things that is right or a definer of success biblically is be careful what you fight over. Be careful what you fight over. We are a Baptist church and we don't have the best history as Baptists in general of being careful what we fight over. We often have in our history of Baptist people been guilty of fighting over really dumb things. And part of being entrusted with the gospel and guarding that deposit is being careful what you fight over. Sometimes you contend for the gospel, and sometimes the way of wisdom is to avoid fruitless and needless arguments. Did you know that there are times when people can disagree with you, and the best thing for you to do is just be quiet? I don't know that in those moments. In those moments, I'm like, here's my 10 points that I'm going to make you feel like an idiot when I say them this way. Like, I don't want you to just say that you're wrong, I want you to say I'm right, and I want you to apologize. That was ridiculous. Like, I kind of go into this quarrelsome mode. It's easy to fall into. At at least it is for me. I guess I can't speak for everyone. Y'all, I'm not seeing a bunch of, yeah, that's me. I'm seeing, no, that's you. I don't do that. Um, No, quarrelsomeness is, is easy to fall into, but if you're kind, you won't be quarrelsome. So sometimes it's good to speak, and sometimes it's good to avoid the argument. I mean, you have to think to yourself, As someone is presenting something that is in opposition to the truth, is this a moment where I need to stand firmly on the truth and speak plainly and defend that truth? Or are they talking about something so inconsequential that entering into this conversation would be dumb? That is a biblical way to be successful in your conversations. And it's okay to say, I'm not I don't even want to talk about this. Some of us are like, I'll talk about anything all the time. Does anyone want to argue? I haven't argued in ten minutes. But there's times where we should just, I, I'm not even going to talk about that. What might be an example of something we just don't even need to, to get caught up in, entangled in, if you will? Everyone's afraid to say what they're thinking because someone else might want to argue with them. <laughs> Music style. Yeah. Yeah. What are some dumb things that churches have divided over that maybe they could have just not talked about? Playground location. Playground location. Drum, Drums. Saxophone or, no saxophone. saxophone or no saxophone. I have been there so many times, it is difficult. It depends on who's playing it. <laughs> Do what? That was a real argument, by the way. I've had that argument. I, yeah. It's always Sharp. Oh, so he was a fan. That's good. What else? What are some other things churches have divided over that maybe we just could have not talked about? What are some relationships that have divided over things that maybe could have just not been talked about? kind of that category of overlookable offenses, right? I mean, Proverbs 19 says it's your glory to overlook an offense. So if something's an overlookable offense, overlook it. Don't talk about it. But to some people, there are no overlookable offenses. Every offense is a capital offense and you will feel my wrath. That's how that goes. And there's times where it's just why it's not talking about. Do you know that that is the reason that our leadership doesn't put everything before this body as a vote? Because what a great way to get everyone entangled in something that's completely inconsequential. Do you know what? Do you know why these, these floors are brown and those walls are white? I think, we, I think we decided in, in fact, Jeff and I, I think, decided on the color of the floor. You like that? I like it. You like it? like Okay, cool. Because if we put it to a vote, we can end up quarreling over something that we don't need to quarrel over. Some people have complained about the floors, but you know what? They stayed the course and they went the distance because it wasn't something to divide over. There's all kinds of things like this. I'm still upset that this building's crooked, but I'm still here. I'll get over it. Y'all notice it's crooked? It's just kind of like that. It just needs to be straight. Um, so uh, we can divide over ridiculous things, and there's times where it is best to just don't enter into the argument. It's okay to do that. Some of us have such a sense of justice that we think an injustice happens if we don't tune the person up. You have to tune everybody up. That's not your job. God's still in control. It's all good. Don't talk about it if it's small. As well, right teaching will always lead to right living and wrong teaching will always lead to wrong living. That's a fact. So most people who decide to live lives contrary to the scriptures usually make some attempt to square their actions with God by skewing or twisting the teaching of the scriptures. So that's usually how it plays out. If you're concerned about teaching, there's times where you defend it, but then the reality is you can always watch it because wrong teaching will always lead to wrong living. hmm Yeah. Silence is consent, but is it okay to sometimes consent to something that's small? That, that, that's where I would land on that. Like, I, I mean, if Jeff thought the color needed to be a little lighter, whatever. You know what I mean? So silence is consent, and where consent cannot be given, don't be silent. That's when you defend the truth. But if it's a, a fairly inconsequential matter or something that's just dumb, like people are arguing over if Genesis should be included in the canon of Scripture or something like that, it's like, man, y'all really go just run with that. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and argue over something like that. Because in seminary, you, you'll find you can argue over just about anything if you're not careful. But yeah, that's true. Silence can be consent. And if it can't be consented, don't be silent about it. But there's probably a lot more than we can... Be just fine with that. That that we uh, sometimes get too worked up over. Verses twenty four through twenty six say, um, I just read it, it says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. They really reiterate the defense of the gospel. Um, in the defense of the gospel, you can't just get mad. That's one of the things that Paul wants Timothy to know here. In the defense of the gospel, you can't just get mad. Sometimes we just like. I'm just mad about it. I'm just offended. I'm offended. I, I shared something on Facebook that I forget who shared it. But uh, J.P. Sears, is that his name? The red-haired guy with the headband. He's really pretty funny. But he, he said he's really working on getting offended, and he's going to work on it every day. And uh, it, in the defense of the gospel, you can't just get offended, and you can't just get mad. It takes more than that. What's required is, is this. This is what we're reading about right here. Tenacity without meanness, firmness without harshness, and the ability to both articulately speak and, but also wisely remain quiet. Those things are held in tension in the scripture and there's no need to relieve the tension. You can hold them in tension in your life if they're in tension in the Scripture. If your heart is not right, your Christianity will only last as long as the circumstances allow you to have everything you want. That's why people are like that. So as long as your circumstances allow you to have everything you want, if that's the the form of Christianity you have, it'll last. But as soon as you can't have what you want, the Christianity goes away. So we have guard that message, keep the message, count the cost, and then finally just continue to the end. If you wish to continue to the end, the main point of this letter is you just can't neglect the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Other translations say competent. So you can think of it as if I want to continue in this faith, I cannot abandon the gospel. I have to hold tight to the scriptures and not neglect them. For if I do, I'm unequipped, I am uh, uh, incomplete, and I'm not ready. I'm incompetent even without the gospel. If you want to persevere, you have to do it with the scriptures. And consider the way that Paul finishes what is likely the last letter he ever penned. Is he talking about you know, leadership in the first letter? And then he comes back to it. Timothy's trying to lead this church in Ephesus. And he comes back in the second letter. and He's talking about success in ministry. What we need to realize as we read this, it's very sobering because this is likely the last words ever penned by Paul. We, at the end, it says this. And four, it says, "I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, Timothy. You can, I mean, hear him talking to Timothy. The time is coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth." They'll wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Here, here a guy in prison who is alone, and he's being vulnerable right now. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And look what he says, do your best to come to me soon. I mean, if you really studied these words and you look at that, that, that's like a very emotional thing. He's being so vulnerable. This strong disciple maker is saying to his young disciple, I'd love to see you. Do your best to come see me. I'm going to die soon. I'd, I'd love to see you. He's already praised God for Lois and Eunice and for the faith that dwells. He's encouraged him to stay strong. And here at the end, he's just vulnerable. And he says, do your best to come see me soon. Vulnerability and honesty in his last moments. Letting people see your weaknesses does not spoil your ability to be an example. It actually makes your example more realistic and relatable. I, when I first started teaching years ago, I thought I don't want to use a lot of personal examples because... I don't want people to think I don't have it together. And it was just pride. It was just a young guy with pride. And what, what we see here modeled by Timothy is that when you're vulnerable and people see those weaknesses, they see Christ at work in those weaknesses. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. So if you want to trumpet the greatness of his strength, why would you hide the weaknesses that you struggle with? It makes them more realistic and relatable. So here's the conclusion. In the late first century... During the public and sinful, vile celebration of the god Dionysius, Timothy was watching a public exp- um, They were worshiping this lowercase g god in a really vile way. And Timothy was, it was like on the street. And Timothy's watching this. It's the late first century. And as he's watching, he was so torn of heart by what he was seeing. I mean, just imagine people worshiping a pagan god in a vile way in front of you. You can imagine probably some of what was going on very fleshly, very gross. And he was so torn of heart by the events that he stood up and he started shouting in opposition to what was just this public frenzy, just this mess. And I didn't actually know how Timothy ever died. I knew how Paul died, but I didn't know until I was reading through this how Timothy died. So he he stands up and he shouts in opposition to what's going on. And when he did, the mob that was there became enraged, pick up clubs and stones, and just beat him until he died. Was Timothy successful? Was Paul successful? Dever closes with this statement. What if you were born in a barn, your father died when you were young, you never settled on a career, and you never married or had a family, and what if you were executed as a terrorist long before the age of 40? Was Jesus successful? This letter to Timothy and probably the last letter that Paul wrote is wonderful in helping us to understand what biblical success is and how it is so... um, profoundly different than worldly success. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, my prayer tonight is real simple. I pray for success. I pray that everyone here listening to this, reading this text, would go and follow the example that's been set for them. Lord, thank you for setting an example for us. Thank you for entrusting the gospel to man who then entrusts it to others, who entrust it to others. Lord, if if that model wasn't set for you way back in that first century and way back even before that, in the Old Testament as a model for your people in Deuteronomy, um, Lord, we wouldn't have the gospel today. We wouldn't be sitting here having this study because we wouldn't know the good news of Christ. So I'm thankful for your design. I pray that we would never let the gospel terminate on us, but that we would continue to take what's been entrusted to us and entrust it to faithful people who will continue to entrust it to others. We love you. Let that be a mark of every ministry of this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.